Good morning. This morning we have the opportunity to look ahead, which we've been doing a lot of in our studies in the book of Revelation. And the word revelation is from the Greek word apocalypsis, which means an unveiling. It's a revelation of Jesus Christ. We've talked about this before. And as we consider that this is a revelation of Jesus Christ and not future events, not last day's judgment, but a revelation of Jesus Christ, it would make sense that we would spend some time in this book talking about the millennium, that is, the thousand-year reign of Christ, what will take place after Christ comes to judge the living and the dead. So, we have spent many months talking about the judgments leading up to this moment. We last week looked at chapter 19, the latter half of 19, and saw the events that will take place when Christ comes again. This morning, as we look at the millennium, it's important to realize that there are some Christians that don't believe that this will happen. They're called amillennialists. Ah, not a millennial. So there are premillennialists. There are postmillennialists. But at the end of the day, we are pre, that is, we believe that Christ will come again, and when he does, he will establish his millennial kingdom, his thousand-year kingdom age. And so we'll be looking at it from that perspective. Not every Christian agrees, but we know that Christ said that he would come again to judge the living and the dead, and that the scriptures reveal that there will come a day when God's will will be done on earth as it is in heaven. That much we know, that prayer will be answered. And so this morning, as we look at chapter 20 in the book of Revelation, in verse 1, I want you to consider a question in your own heart. Where will you be? Where will you be when that millennium is established? We're going to see and be introduced to a number of different groups of people. And each of these groups, depending on how they responded to the gospel, will have a very different eternal destiny. But all those who come to Christ and have come to Christ throughout the centuries, throughout the millennia, will have a place in the kingdom age. Not one better than the other, all of us together united as one family in Christ. So with that, let's open in prayer and allow the Lord to speak to our hearts and encourage us through the study of his word. Lord, Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word, and this truly is an encouraging word. There's almost nothing negative to discuss in this chapter. No tragedies, really, not not at all. Just the truth that we'll spend an eternity with you. Starting with a 1,000-year reign on earth, Before you establish a new heavens and a new earth, there's only good things to look forward to once we are in your presence. Paul told the Thessalonians that they were to encourage one another, in chapter 4, verse 18, to encourage one another with these words. The words that teach us that we will forever be with you. Lord, encourage us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, this morning is uh, Communion Sunday, so we're actually preparing our hearts to receive communion. And it's always good to think about the future that Christ preached through communion. You know, he he said, as as often as you take the bread and drink from the cup, you do preach the Lord's death until he comes. 
That is to say that there will be no need for a communion celebration in the last days or after the last days during our, that millennial uh, kingdom. There will be no reason to use emblems or symbols to celebrate the presence of Christ, for we will be in the presence of Christ. Amen? Many of these symbols simply point us to Christ and his kingdom. They picture it. They symbolize it. They teach us about it. But I'm looking forward to that moment where we don't need any teaching or symbolism because we'll be in the midst of Christ and his followers forever. It starts in chapter 20, verse 1, where John tells us in this vision, for this vision has revealed much about the future. He says in verse 1, I saw an angel or a messenger coming down out of heaven and having the key to the abyss and holding in his hand a great chain. And he sees the dragon, that ancient serpent, who is the devil or Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. And he threw him into the abyss and locked and sealed it over him to keep him from deceiving the nations anymore until the thousand years were ended. And after that, he must be set free for a short time. So that gives us a a picture, really, of the entire time period from the moment that Christ comes again. We saw last week that, and we'll see this again in our study, that the Antichrists, there are two, the two beasts, the beast and the false prophet, that this world leader and this counterfeit miracle worker, which the devil will use to deceive the whole world, that that they will be cast alive into the lake of fire. That's where we left off last week. But what about the devil? What about Satan? He will end up eventually in the lake of fire, but according to God's purposes, there's still something that God will allow the devil to do. And it's so difficult to understand why God allows the devil to do anything. We're studying and finishing our studies in the book of Job on Wednesday evenings. And the question that's on everyone's mind is, why on earth did God allow Satan to convince or direct or try to direct God to afflict Job? That's a question I cannot answer. That's not what we're trying to do on Wednesday nights. We're looking at God's purpose in suffering. But it's clear that we don't have all the answers. For example, why was Satan in the garden? Have you ever asked that question? Why did God allow Satan to tempt man and woman in the garden, Adam and Eve? Why is Satan allowed to continue to tempt and deceive the nations? Why, why, why? You know what? You'll go on with that forever unless you come to this conclusion. God is in control. Once you understand and appreciate that God is in control, then whatever happens, you can say, I know it doesn't make any sense to me. I don't understand why Job was afflicted. I don't understand why Satan is allowed to tempt people and why he tempted Adam and even why God allowed it. And I don't understand why he's going to appear in the last days working through these two antichrists and all of this terrible stuff is going to happen. I don't know that and I don't know why after putting him in the abyss, God would let him out. That I cannot answer, except to say that God is in control. But you'll notice something. If you look a little bit more deeply at why God does what he does, not that you can explain it, would mankind really have had a choice if not tempted to disobey? Would we have learned about the purposes of God's suffering if not for the book of Job? And would mankind be given that opportunity 
to truly seek God and commit their hearts to him if there wasn't an alternative in the world through Satan and his Antichrist. And I think you can come to the conclusion that maybe you and I wouldn't have done it this way, but that God really does know what he's doing. Amen? Having said that, this is a favorite moment for me in prophetic history. That is history that hasn't happened yet. Because John sees an angel, a messenger coming down out of heaven with a key to the abyss and a great chain in his hand. Now, the angel had the key to the abyss. Now, I'm going to remind you, going back to chapter 9, that that key had been previously given to what we believe was a fallen angel, perhaps Satan himself, to open up the abyss. Now, the abyss. We'll talk a little bit about this. The abyss is sometimes referred to as the bottomless pit. It's a demonic prison. We know that Jesus had the power to send demons into the abyss, according to Luke's gospel in chapter 8. What is the abyss? Beyond that, I really can't tell you. It's a plane of existence. We know of several planes of existence. The earth and the heavens, the heavens and the earth. Creation, the universe, is a plane of existence. God created it. But it's not the only plane of existence. For example, there's Hades, which is the place of the dead. Sometimes referred to in Hebrew as Sheol, or the pit, or the grave. That's not here. That, if I can just go a little sci-fi for just a minute, planes of existence might be dimensional spheres. They, they may be dimensions that coexist in the same physical space. I don't know, but I know this. That's two. Heavens and the earth, that is creation, the universe, one plane of existence. Hades, the place of the dead. There's another place which may be part of Hades, but perhaps is separate, called Tartarus. It's from the Greek word, from the Greek myths. It's a, it's a prison for fallen angels. It seems to be separate from Hades. It's talked about in the scriptures once, uh, by name, and then other times, uh, not by name. But Tartarus is the place referred to as the angelic prison. We've talked about it in our studies. Uh, you have God's throne, the heavens, which is outside of time and space. It's not the heavens that we talk about. We talk about the third heaven because the first heaven is the sky. The second heaven is the space around our planet and throughout the universe. And then you have the third heaven, which Paul refers to in his writings. That refers to a place outside of creation. It's where people receive visions of heaven, but it's where God sits on his throne. And we've seen so much of it in our studies. So you have that heaven, the third heaven. Uh, By the way, just so you understand, where can you go from his spirit? Where can you flee from his presence? You go up to heaven, he's there. If you descend into the depths, let's say Hades, he's there. That is, there is no place in all of creation, in all of these planes of existence, that God is not. It would be wrong to say that God doesn't inhabit all of eternity. For example... You might say, well, God isn't in hell, is he? Well, hell is a place where God's wrath exists. So God is there too. But his wrath, his grace, no, his grace is absent from that sphere or plane of existence. But his wrath is eternal, just like his grace and mercy. So you have heaven. Someday there'll be a new heaven and a new earth. But for now, those are most of the planes of existence. Uh, there, There may be others. But that's enough to think about. One of them is the abyss. What is the abyss? It's called the bottomless pit. I I imagine if I was going to get a little scientific, might have something to do with a black hole. We don't know. But this much we do know. Spiritually speaking, 
It's the place where demons, when they're cast out, are sent to. There comes a point in chapter 9 of this book where it seems a fallen angel, perhaps the devil, is given the key and opens up that demonic prison, and all of this demonic activity takes place on the earth in the last days. That's going back to chapter 9. But this abyss is a place of fiery torment for these evil spirits. They do not want to be there. They would prefer to avoid it. They say so in the scriptures. Satan is referred to a number of different ways in this section that we've read. But when we go back to chapter 9, we're introduced to that fallen angel that opened up the abyss. He's called Destroyer. And we're given that in Hebrew and Greek, Destroyer. And that very accurately describes Satan, among his many other names or descriptions. But this angel had a great chain. And that's important because not only did he have the key to open up this demonic prison, which apparently at this point was empty because it had already been opened, but now it serves another purpose. This plane of existence is the dimension, if you will, that Satan will be imprisoned in far from the heavens and the earth and God's creation, the universe. Can you imagine a universe without the devil? You might call that heaven. It's not. But it's close. It's the kingdom age. And for a thousand years, I want you to think about it, a thousand years without the devil deceiving people. It doesn't mean there'll be no sin, but a thousand years without the devil. It's got to be a pretty good thousand years. Would you agree? So when I think about that, that alone makes it very attractive to me. Because if there's one thing that's very clear in our world and in our culture today is that deception is on the rise. People believe all manner of evil. They believe things that I can't believe they believe. And that if I told you 20 years ago they believed, you wouldn't believe it. Or wouldn't have had believed it. So you understand, it's amazing when I think about the deception today. It's, It's incredible. The scriptures tell us that there are those who are taken captive by Satan's will. We are not among them if we're in Christ because we know the truth and we're set free. And if Jesus sets you free, you're free indeed. So we know that, but still think about it with me. Think about it. Just any, I'm not even going to mention them this morning. The, The many deceptions that are being embraced today about gender and sexuality, about what's murder and what's not murder, about what's right and what's wrong. There are so many deceptions. You have to stop and think, why? I would suggest the devil's been working overtime, but I would also tell you that God is allowing it. God allows a deception to take place in order to drive those of us who know the truth to the truth and present the truth in contrast with the deception of the world and the devil. That is simply how God has chosen to interact with our universe. You can take issue with that, but that is what he tells us in his word. So this angel has a great chain. I'm happy about that. I have no problem seeing Satan in chains. A great chain in his hand. He bound Satan for a thousand years in this vision. Now, he's called the great dragon. And that tells us some things because he's the great dragon, the ancient serpent, if you will, that deceived Eve in the garden, the garden of Eden. We saw that going back to Genesis chapter 3, that he is the great dragon, the ancient serpent. By the way, the language that's used there in Greek, dragon, means to look. 
It literally means to look. And it speaks of him looking or being in this world, looking into this world, and being called the God of this world. What did Satan say when God said, have you considered my servant Job? Had Satan missed it? Was he on vacation? Was he sitting on a beach somewhere, maybe Brimstone Beach? Hanging out thinking, you know, uh, well, oh, Job, Job who? No, he said, oh, yeah. Where had he been going to and fro throughout the whole earth? Looking at the earth, dragon looking at the earth and analyzing it, looking into it, looking at people. And he had considered God's servant Job. He knew everything about Job. So the first thing we need to understand, and what was he doing, by the way? Looking into what was going on in the garden. So the first thing we need to understand is Satan is aware, hyper aware of what's going on today in our world. He is looking into it, seeking to influence it, influence you and others in the world. He is looking to deceive the world. We have a very active God in creation. We have a very destructively active Satan in creation as well. That's what that word dragon actually means. The Greek word. Now, the word serpent, it's a different word. He's often called both the dragon and the serpent. This one has to do with being cunning. And you can understand why the Greek word for serpent would be, would mean cunning, because after all, he was very cunning in deceiving Eve. And he is very cunning in deserving, in deceiving uh, others who are serving God. So, it speaks of him being the deceiver of mankind. So yes, he looks into and seeks to be the God of this world, to influence it, he also deceives mankind. Very accurate descriptions, helps you to understand a little bit about our enemy. And we are not ignorant of the devil's schemes, amen? He's also called the devil. That's not his name. It means accuser. It's a title or a description. He's also called Satan. That word is not his name. It means adversary, Satan. And he leads the whole world astray. The word for devil, again, to slander. It's really what it means, to slander, to accuse. So another aspect of Satan's deception is that he not only deceives us as to what's true, then he goes ahead and accuses us before the throne of God. He slanders you. He's not working for you. He's working against you. He ropes people into following him and serving him, and then given the opportunity, turns on them and accuses them before God. We, we saw that in Job chapter 1 and Job chapter 2. We, we see that throughout the scriptures. We see that in Revelation chapter 12 as well. The accuser of the brethren, he accuses you. But remember, Christ ever lives to make intercession on our behalf before the throne of God. Amen? Hebrews tells us that. He ever lives to make intercession on our behalf. Now, the word Satan means to oppose. So not only is he a slanderer and an accuser, he's an adversary that opposes us. So he doesn't just say bad things about us. He actually works against us. He is also the adversary of God, not just the accuser of God's people, the adversary of God. He is constantly working against the plan of God. I know what you're thinking. God is all-powerful, all-knowing, all-present, ever-present. Why on earth or in heaven and earth, why in the world 
Hasn't God dealt with this adversary? Because God is in control. There is a purpose in why the devil has been allowed to do what he has done. It's very difficult to understand that. I guess Naomi just asked me a question before the service. What about the Holocaust? What about the terrible things that have happened throughout humanity's history? How do you line that up with God being a loving God? Well, God is in control, which means he allows Satan to work. And mankind doesn't do anything to stop. In fact, many times assists Satan, as we saw during the Third Reich, in doing some of the things that Satan is allowed to do. But God is not the author of those things. He is the allower of those things. That's not fair. Take it up with God. Aren't you glad God's not fair? Has he been fair to you or has he been so much better than fair? But I know what you're thinking. Yeah, but it doesn't, it's not fair that tragedies happen in this world. These things don't make sense. I know they don't. But God is in control. They may not make sense to us, but if God could so easily put Satan in chains and throw him into the abyss and let him out, who's in control? Tell me who's in control. Come on, the kids know the answer to every question in Sunday school is always the same thing. And if it's not God, it's Jesus. Who's in control? God. God is in control. He is in control. That's that's the encouragement I get from this chapter. I look at it and I think, who's in control? Now, the angel just threw Satan, an angel just threw Satan into the abyss. So God doesn't even have to get involved. He dispatches one of his angels, a mighty messenger perhaps, and that's it. Thousand year sentence. Imprisons him there where he's locked and sealed in the abyss to keep him from deceiving the nations during that thousand year time period. And the fact that he will be released for a short time at the end of the millennium to fulfill God's plan for mankind doesn't rattle my cage anymore. You know why? Because I'm living, you're living, we're living in an age where Satan is loose. Or have you noticed? Is God working? Help me out. Is God working? Is God in control? Satan can be locked up and God is in control. Satan can be let loose and God is in control. Satan can be influencing and deceiving the world like he is today. And God is in control. If you see that, if your brain can digest that truth, nothing that happens in this world for the rest of your earthly life will shake your faith. Nothing that's happened in the distant past will shake your faith. Things may surprise you, but you'll know God is never surprised. Why is this important? Because if you don't know right now in your heart, in this world, that God is in control, you're on pretty shaky ground. Your faith will fail you. You won't be able to give others an answer for the hope that you have. You won't be able to preach the gospel. You'll be undone by the world around you and your circumstances. And when you're sick and when you become ill and those that you love die, you're going to question the truth that God is in control. I'm here to tell you, if God can put Satan in chains, God is in control. But he will be released. Satan will be released. Okay. We'll see what happens with that in just a minute.
But in the first part of verse 4, John saw something. Look at the first part of verse 4 in this section. He says, I saw thrones on which were seated those who had been given authority to judge. I saw thrones. Jesus talked about this with his disciples. He said, you'll sit on 12 thrones judging the children of Israel, the tribes of Israel. We've seen these thrones before. There were 24 elders around the throne of God. Thrones in heaven. Not the throne of God. Thrones around the throne of God. Positions of authority, if you will. And those with authority to judge are the resurrected and raptured saints of God. By the way, that's all of us. Because those saints that we love that have since passed on into God's presence are among that group who will sit on thrones. And those of us who are alive at his coming will sit on thrones judging the world. That is, we will rule and reign with him. So these are also the Old Testament saints. David, Abraham, Moses, the church of Jesus Christ that has existed for two millennia. We will all have already received our resurrected bodies. We will be sinless, perfect, in constant communion with God, in the presence of Jesus, better than we are today. Different, but the same. The same soul, a different body. A same soul, a different body. And these people, that is all of us, will judge Israel, those on the earth who are God's people, who were spared by God during the tribulation. We're told that. But we're also told that we will judge the Christ-rejecting world. Anyone that rejects Christ will be judged. We'll be in a position of authority as kingdoms and a kingdom of priests uh, unto our God. But we'll, or, we'll also be judging angels. We're told in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 3, that we will judge angels. That is messengers. Now, that could easily mean human messengers. It could mean spiritual or celestial messengers. It could be the fallen angels. I suspect it is, certainly. They would need to be judged. We're going to be involved in that 1,000-year time of God's kingdom in a position of authority over the heavens and the earth with Christ, reigning with Christ. Now, I've often thought about the day of judgment. We call it the day of judgment. We assume that's the day Christ comes again. Oh, no, that's the beginning of the day of judgment. For the scripture tells us that with the Lord, a day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years is as a day. Do you realize the millennium is a day of judgment? That is, Christ is in control, and we rule and reign with him. The earth will be judged. The angels, the fallen angels, those that are still alive, all those who have ever existed, all creatures great and small, will be judged not only by Christ, but by his bride, that is all of us. Amen? We're in that position of authority. So where will you be during that thousand years? Remember I asked that question? You will be, if you're in Christ, in a position of authority, ruling and reigning with him. That's where you'll be. And so, there are also the souls of those that have passed on. Look what it says in the latter part of verse 4 and into verse 5. We read there that he saw the souls, and I saw the souls, of those who had been beheaded because of their testimony for Jesus and because of the word of God. They had not worshipped the beast or his image and had not received the mark on their foreheads or their hands. They came to life 
and reigned with Christ a thousand years. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. So, I'm going to get a little timeline here. I like timelines. This is helpful. These are the souls that are mentioned here of those who had been beheaded. Why? Because of their testimony for Jesus and the word of God. These are those who were martyred during the seven years of tribulation. They are the faithful martyrs. We're told John saw them and they are now given their resurrected bodies the way that I believe the raptured church is given their resurrected bodies. See, they were killed by the enemies of Christ for one very important reason. They refused to worship Satan. They refused to worship the beast in his image. They refused to reject Christ. They were killed for not receiving the mark of the beast, which is a sign of loyalty to the beast, on their foreheads or in their hands. We don't know what this mark will be. We know what it means. It means you serve Satan and reject Christ. So as long as you're not serving Satan and you haven't rejected Christ, it is physically and spiritually impossible to receive the mark of the beast. Please, somebody tell these YouTube maniacs this truth. If I see one more video that suggests that the vaccine was the mark of the beast, I'm going to lose it. Read your Bible with your brain. Stop taking up precious space on the internet. These individuals were killed for their public testimony and for preaching God's word. Now, aren't we glad that today, at least today, we're not being killed by the enemies of Christ for worshiping Satan? No, of course not. There aren't people in the world that are either, but for refusing to worship Satan, these individuals will be killed. Satan exists. The beast and his image don't, not yet. But the enemies of Christ will one day kill those like us who refuse to worship Satan. Are we there today? No, and I'm glad to say we're not. We're not being asked to receive a mark of loyalty to this beast or to Satan. So we're not being killed for that. But there are many Christians throughout the centuries who have been killed and are being killed for their public testimony and for preaching God's word. So these things are happening on a a smaller scale. They will happen on a much more uh, grander scale, a greater scale during that time of tribulation. And we've talked so much about it. But these individuals were resurrected after the tribulation. And this is why everyone's a little confused, I think, personally, my, my opinion. You hear a lot about a rapture that will take place before the tribulation. That would mean you're pre-trib. You hear a lot about a rapture that will take place in the middle, somewhere during the tribulation. That would be mid-trib. And then you hear about a rapture or resurrection that takes place at the end of the tribulation. That would make you post-trib. All three of those theories, by the way, are premillennial. But having said that, I am a pre-tribulationist. I am a premillennialist. I am a dispensationalist. And now you've got a few words you can use in your next game of Scrabble. That simply means that I teach prophecy in this way. However, I do want to say this. 
If the rapture of the church were to take place after the beginning of the tribulation, it wouldn't throw my eschatology. That is my study of the last days. But I do know this. We will not experience the wrath of God. The wrath of God. God does not judge the righteous with the wicked. That we know. Sodom was destroyed, but not until Lot and his family were taken out. So that tells me that I won't be here to experience the wrath of God, for the wrath of God came upon Christ when he was on the cross. I, you, we will never experience the wrath of God if we were in Christ. Amen? He experienced the wrath of God so that we don't have to. So what sense would that make? That doesn't mean we won't experience the wrath of man or Satan. So that's why there's persecution today in places like North Korea and throughout the world. You have in Iran, you have Christians being persecuted throughout the world. Why? Because that's the wrath of man. That's not the wrath of God. That's not the wrath of God. So there is a resurrection slash rapture before the tribulation, I believe. Well, there definitely was a hint at one that took place in the past. Then there is something that takes place in the middle of that tribulation, at least for two people. And then at the end of the tribulation, we're told here that the faithful martyrs are resurrected. So there is a resurrection at the end of the tribulation. So, <clears throat> technically, if someone asks me if I'm pre-mid or post, I just say yes, yes, and yes. Because all three are technically true on some level. You see, the resurrected in heaven include the Old Testament saints, who I believe may have received their new bodies after Jesus rose from the dead. Because in Matthew 27, verses 51 through 53, there's an indication, at least some people in Jerusalem at that time came out of the tombs and were seen in Jerusalem. I don't think it was something out of some zombie movie. Something happened. Maybe it was just those that had recently died. But some group of people were resurrected when Christ was resurrected. It may have been all the saints. It may have been a few of them, but it was some of them for sure. Check it out, Matthew 27, if you like. Now, we know that the church, according to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 and 1 Corinthians chapter 15, it's not just one place, that the church will receive their new bodies at a time called the rapture. Again, there's some debate as to when that will happen, but not if it will happen, for Paul taught on this extensively in those two sections of Scripture. What this means is that those who are alive at a certain point in time, rather than dying and later being resurrected, will immediately be resurrected while they're alive. This is the only group of people, it seems, never experienced death. That is the first death, physical death, because their bodies are changed as opposed to being resurrected. You might think of it as an instant resurrection. But this is the church. So you have the Old Testament saints, you have the church. I mentioned the two witnesses in chapter 11, verses 11 and 12. They will receive their new bodies during the Great Tribulation. They're killed, and three days later, they, they are raised from the dead, and they ascend into heaven, having received their resurrected bodies. If that's just them, that's fine. It may be more. I don't know. I just know that at that particular moment, that's what happens. Some people look at that, and they say, well, that's when the rapture of the church will take place. It doesn't say that, but that's another theory. Anyway, we also have these faithful martyrs who will receive their new bodies and reign with Christ for a thousand years. So I guess what I'm saying is, if you love God, you'll be there. Where will you be?
Back to that question again. You'll be here if you love God. Well, what if you love God before Christ? You'll be here. Well, what if you love God, you know, early on in the church? You'll be here. Well, what if, what if you love God last week? Well, you'll, you'll be there. What if you love God during the tribulation? You'll be here. We will all be here. The rest of the dead will not. We're told, what does it say? The rest of the dead in the first part of chapter 5 did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. By the way, if you don't think it's a resurrection, come to life is pretty clear. So, the rest of the dead. We'll talk about the rest of the dead. I think we'll get into that next week. Uh, But the rest of the dead are the wicked, those that reject Christ. So, the rest of the dead will stay in Hades, the place of the dead, another plane of existence, and they'll receive new bodies. By the way, read that again. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. What does that tell you? Every single human being will receive a resurrected body. Let that sink in a little bit. Just not all at the same time. So even if you're wicked, you'll receive a resurrected body, an eternal body that can experience eternal torment in a way that you can't even possibly imagine. You know, today, if I cut my finger, it hurts for a little bit, and then it heals. But I don't know what our resurrected bodies will be like. Because if I suffer enough pain in this body, I die. And that becomes a release from pain and suffering. What happens when my body doesn't die and maybe it heals instantaneously? A little X-Men there. What, what, what if that were the case? What if I had a body that I could suffer pain and then not die? Would you want that for all eternity? In eternal torment? Think about that. Because that's what hell is. Imagine being in a lake of fire and you can't burn. Or you can suffer, but you don't die. That raises the stakes as to what we think about when we think about hell. Because we imagine us now in, in our bodies in hell. No, no, no. Much worse than that. I'll leave it at that. We'll talk more next week about it. But here now, <clears throat> John declares that the resurrection of the faithful martyrs of the tribulation completes the first resurrection. Let me read it for you. Latter part of verse 5. This is, or this completes, the idea is this is, it's done. This is the first resurrection. Blessed, that is happy, and holy are those who have part in the first resurrection. The second death, which I described to you just in a few minutes ago, has no power over them. Can I hear amen? But they will be priests of God and of Christ and will reign with him for a thousand years. Where will you be? This is where you'll be. And that's why this section is so encouraging. This is where you'll be. Now understand that what I just said is, This completes the first resurrection. There is a second resurrection. We'll talk about it next week. But this is the first resurrection. And we think of the the events as singular moments. And they're not. The second resurrection happens once. The first resurrection started with Christ, who was the first fruits of the dead, 2,000 years ago. He rose from the dead. Amen? He is risen. And ever since then... 
We have been in a time period that's called the first resurrection, and I've already gone through the different moments in quote-unquote time where people receive their resurrected bodies, but this is the end. So from Christ to this moment is the first resurrection, and they are blessed and happy because if you're a part of that resurrection, which again spans at least 2,000 years, then you're happy, and notice it says, and holy. Happy and holy, blessed and holy, are those who have part in the first resurrection. And of course, the second death has no power over them, but we're going to rule and reign with him. So all those who receive their new bodies in the first resurrection are blessed and holy. That's good news. They're spared the second death, which is the lake of fire. The first death is what? If there's a second death, what's the first death? Well, the first death is natural death. And only the raptured saints are spared the first death. But what did Jesus say? If you believe on me, you will never see death. Could he have been talking about the first death? Certainly not. Because had he, there's lots of people I know that love God that have died. The second death is what he was referring to, which again we'll get into in future studies. But we will all be priests of God and of Christ, and we're going to reign with him for a thousand years. Now I need an amen. I need another one. That is good news. Are you encouraged? I'm encouraged. I could stop there, and you know what I'm going to. Because I think that's enough to take into it. I was going to go a little further, but you know what? Who's in a rush? Next week, we'll look at the release of Satan, which we've hinted at already, and his final judgment. And I want to give that a little bit more attention than just mentioning it. I I think there's a lot there we should look at. And then we'll look at, of course, in the following week, the millennium, uh, it comes to an end, and there's a new heaven and a new earth. But before that, you have the great white throne judgment of mankind. So these are heavy topics, and it's a lot to take in. And I never know when I start a study, when are we going to hit supersaturation? And just describing it, I hit supersaturation. So I'm sure your heads are like, that's enough, Tim, I got it. That's enough to think about. And plus, it's really encouraging. To know that God is in control is encouraging. And to know that we're a part of the first resurrection and that we're going to reign with him for a thousand years is encouraging. And I need to be encouraged in this wicked world. So where will you be? Let's pray. Lord, Heavenly Father, we thank you. As we prepare our hearts to receive communion, a celebration that predicts promotes and promises the truth that we've talked about today. That there will come a day where we won't have to receive these elements to remember you because we'll never forget. We'll never be away from you. We'll constantly be with you for all eternity. Blessed and holy in the first resurrection, which is the resurrection of all the righteous throughout time. Lord, we're grateful that we'll never experience your wrath because Christ took upon himself the wrath of God. That's what we celebrate as we prepare our hearts. That's what we remember. That's what we memorialize when we receive these elements, that your body was broken, that we are not broken, we're made whole. But your body was broken. And that your blood was shed. Our blood is not shed. That is, we may be shed, shedding blood as martyrs, but our blood is not shed For the sacrifice of sins, there remains no more sacrifice for sin. That is, 
There need not be any more mass. There need not be any more Eucharist. There need not be any more actual sacrifice. It is simply a remembrance of you. You told us to do this as often as we do it in remembrance of you. And so, as we looked forward, we now look inward. We examine our hearts. We make sure that we're receiving these elements worthily. That is, we say to our own hearts and say publicly that as we come forward to receive these elements, we're saying, you died on the cross for our sins. You rose again on the third day. That you ascended into heaven where you ever lived to make intercession on our behalf. And that you are coming again to judge the living and the dead. And that you'll establish your kingdom forever. And that's where we'll be with you. That's what we say as we receive these elements. And if we don't believe that, may we remember the words of Paul, who said that if you don't believe these things and you receive the cup and you receive the bread, you're actually condemning yourself because you're saying these things are true, but I don't believe them. And those that do that have no place in the first resurrection. They're not blessed. They're not holy. And they'll spend an eternity in that lake of fire, that torment. That you're not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to everlasting life, to eternal life. But we make a mockery of such things if we come to this table and suggest otherwise. So as we come forward, we know every heart coming forward has made a decision to make you their Lord and Savior. Believing these truths, the truths of the gospel, and giving their hearts to you. Having received the promise of eternal life and spending eternity with you. Lord, we thank you for these truths. Prepare our hearts as we prepare our hearts, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.